Kid Review Print Speaking to the Blind, celebrating 40 years of audio newspaper production. Welcome to this week's edition of the Herald Scotland podcast, recorded at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre by our amazing volunteers. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using at TuneReview, that is at symbol C-U-E-A-N-E-R-E-V-I-E-W. You can also contact us directly by emailing information at tunereview.com. That is I-N-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot C-O-M or by calling 0141 772 That's 0141 772 from the Herald Scotland, Wednesday the 8th of February 2023, from the opinion section, forget the old firm, around here the glorious Six Nations rules, by Rosemary Goring. Snowdrops, birdsong, crocuses peeping through the frostbitten grass, there's no doubt spring is on its way. For me, however, the truest harbinger of sunnier days is not to be found in the flower beds. But when our Welsh friends descend for the biannual Scotland Wales match at Murrayfield, as clockwork as daffodils coming into bud, they arrive in February with enough luggage to last the duration of the tournament, even though they're only staying for a couple of nights. Up the path they come, with carrier bags clinking with bottles of wine and gin. If they don't start out speaking Welsh, the floodgates soon open, and we could be in the centre of Cymru rather than the tight-lipped borders. These are no ordinary rugby fans. I spotted them on TV amid the adoring Cardiff throng clutching Arlo and Jones' hand and not, by the looks of it, for the first time. They think nothing of travelling to New Zealand or Japan to follow the British and Irish Lions tour, planting a little piece of Wales wherever they go. Whenever we watch a Welsh game, we try to spot them in the stand. We've yet to do so, but my husband is convinced he can hear Anne cheering when they score a try. Last weekend, when Ireland raced ahead, she seemed uncharacteristically subdued. As the final whistle blew, we pictured their commiserations lasting long into the night. Although I've only once been to Murrayfield, too cold for comfort, I've always looked forward to the Six Nations, or the Five Nations as it was called when I was young, before Italy joined in. I'd watched with my dad, who had been a fly half in his prime, in the cause of which he lost several teeth. While rain lashed the pitch or gales howled around the stadium, early spring weekends came alive as the rows of Scotland fans and the dirge-like flower of Scotland summoned us to the sofa. After the skirl of the pipes faded and the ball was kicked into play, the afternoon was spent more in hope than expectation. Being a Scotland rugby fan is a serious test of loyalty and endurance. It is a mark of character not to drop your head into your hands when we allow sudden when we allow success to be snatched from us, when, with alarming frequency, we manage to turn a promising lead into another flodden. At such moments, I fear my husband will have a heart attack, yelling so hard that he sets the village all his being. He's even louder when we are on the charge, as when Van der Merwe worked his magic last weekend during the Calcutta Cup, moving like a snipe between the English defenders and giving the country one of its happiest hours since Elvis landed at Preswick. In the days since, I've lost count of the times we've watched the highlights. Such moments are to be savoured, 
No matter what happens in subsequent matches, Jamie Ritchie and his team have already done us proud. Understandably, there was a sharp intake of breath when, in an interview after that match, Van der Meer said, there's no reason why Scotland can't beat every other team in the tournament. He's right, of course, but many of us have, le- have learned the painful way that there's no place for optimism in this game. It's all about managing expectations. Despite what you could euphemistically call the ups and downs of falling against Townsend's squad, the agony and the ecstasy might be more accurate. As soon as the calendar turns to February, things look up. In the co-op, the fish van queue or the butchers, especially the butchers, for several weeks, there's no other topic of conversation. This is doddy weir country, after all, where toddlers are dressed in rugby shirts and handed a ball before they're quite steady in their feet. Football supporters are a rare breed. The fortunes of Celtic and Rangers are of no consequence to most folk around here, whereas Townsend's selection for the Scotland side is debated more closely than a political manifesto. Everyone, and I mean everyone, having their, their opinion on individual players' weaknesses and strengths. As a consequence, during a game, the entire region suddenly feels deserted. Roads quiet, streets empty, as if there's been a bomb alert. Although horses come a close second, in the borders, rugby is king, as seen by the number of players in the national squad drawn from Hoyk and the environs. When we play the English, there are unmistakably echoes of the old Reaver high days, when clans fought their enemies across the tweed with eye-watering ferocity. In modern times, there might only be a ball in play, but the space of 80 minutes, it feels as if historic hostilities are not far from the surface. That said, whichever team we're facing, the hard scrabble, pitiless nature of the sport and what it demands of players is a reminder of punishing yesteryears. Electricians, plumbers, painter decorators all have their rugby stories to tell, sometimes in the form of metal pins in their legs or, or weeks off work to recover from head injuries or fractures. A friend who does not follow the game was speaking to her son's sports teacher recently. Was he concerned about incidents of concussion during school matches, she asked. Not at all, he replied. After a couple of weeks rest, the lads and lassies would be right as rain. But wouldn't it be better if concussions could be avoided altogether, she suggested. He looked taken aback, as if this was a concept he had never considered. The Scotland squad might need hard heads, but those of us who follow them have to be emotionally tough. So far, there is only a single, albeit joyous, victory. Who knows what lies ahead, although you can bet that some of it will not be pretty. This year, our Welsh guests are arriving shortly after the Scotland-Wales contest, and the first even will, inevitably, be spent in a post-mortem. Forensic is too laid back an adjective to describe it. The perfect host will be hoping to arrive in the best of spirits, enjoying every minute of their trip, and with a win under their belt. Not me. I'd rather be in the position of cheering them up and feeling sore than feeling sore and aggrieved while pretending it's all of no consequence. And that opinion piece was by Rosemary Goring. From the Herald Scotland, Wednesday the 8th of February 2023, from the opinion section, Why the Mediocre Scottish Parliament Needs Reform by Adam Tomkins. Next year, the Scottish Parliament will celebrate its 25th anniversary. Its quarter century is an apt time to consider what it does well and where it falls short. I hope that, as this year and next unfold, Scotland will find itself in a position to have that discussion and to have it honestly. 
for we are not there yet. As a nation we are, in the main, overwhelmingly defensive about our parliament. We need not be. Only t- the tiniest min- minority in the extreme fringes of Scottish politics would rather be without it. All five of Scotland's main parties consider the Scottish Parliament to be at the heart of their plans and no British government would entertain for a moment the notion of abolishing it. Let's sure there's any doubt about that, consider the UK's response to Covid. The UK government could easily have declared the pandemic to be a state of emergency, triggering the UK's emergency regime, the Civil Contingencies Act. Had this occurred, all Covid-related emergency regulations would have been made for the whole of the UK by UK ministers. Neither the Scottish ministers nor the Scottish Parliament would have had any role to play at all. They could all have been furloughed. But, as we know, this is not what happened. Instead, there were different lockdown regimes imposed in each of the UK's four nations, with each government making its own decisions through 2020 and 2021 about how and when to release us from the various restrictions. It was messy. But that is what the modern UK is. No longer a top-down country in which size, one size fits all, but a devolved state in which institutions are free, within the limits of the law, to make their own decisions, even in a time of emergency. Devolution is here to stay. Realistically, the only way it could be brought to an end would be for Scotland to leave the UK and become an independent state, but since last autumn's breakthrough Supreme Court judgement, it has been clear to everyone that this isn't happening any time soon. Thus, we are stuck with devolution, and so we should really should take stock, be honest with ourselves about what, what is going well and what is not, and see if we can make improvements. I, for one, believe we can do a whole lot better. If I were judging it, I'd give the Scottish Parliament a score of no, no more than 5 out of 10, and I don't think we should settle for so mediocre a result. Let's start with the positives. What Holyrood has done well is to establish itself at the heart of the nation's politics. This is not to be taken for granted. The same could not be said, for example, of the Welsh Senate in Cardiff or the Northern Ireland Assembly in Stormont. Parliaments have three tasks. They debate the affairs of the nation. They hold the government of the day to account for their policies, actions and decisions. And they make laws. Holyrood undertakes and performs the first of these tasks well. It is where we look as Scots for leadership and debate in the matters of the moment. It lies at the fulcrum, at the centre of our politics. But, of a Parliament's task, this is at least important. Its value lies in symbolism rather than effectiveness. When we turn to the second and third tasks, Holyrood has much to learn. The truth is, it's never been good at holding ministers to account and, in recent years, it has got a whole lot worse. Ministers regard Parliament as being, at best, a place where they have to explain what they are doing, but not why they are doing it. Ministers know it is not the merits of theirs or their opponents' arguments that win the day at Holyrood, but the sheer weight of numbers. No matter how risible a minister's performance, everybody knows, government and opposition alike, that the minister is never going to be removed from office by a vote of Parliament. The contrast with the House of Commons is stark. Last year saw the removal, against their will, not merely of ministers but of prime ministers, two of them, because backbenchers made it clear they no longer had any confidence in their administrations. Such a move is unthinkable in Holyrood. No minister, no matter how lowly, feels the slightest jeopardy. They know their future lies in the First Minister's hands alone. 
MSPs have no prospect of removing even the lousiest minister from office unless and until the first minister herself has decided it is time for that minister to move on. Ministerial accountability to parliament is, in Holyrood, a sham. Which leaves lawmaking. In the parliamentary session in which I served, I thought Holyrood did this well. This is not to say I agree with all the laws passed. Of course I did not. But when I disagreed, I thought, in the main, that the lawmaking process had been robust. But no longer. The debacle of the outrageous way the Gender Recognition Reform Bill was railroaded through Parliament in December was reminiscent of bills from earlier sessions on offensive behaviour at football and on named persons, which had to be thrown out subsequently. Everyone expects the Gender Recognition Bill to end up in the Supreme Court, just like NDRF2 did, and named persons and the Children's Rights Bill. The Scottish Government lost every time. It should not be the role of the Supreme Court to act as the revising chamber for Hollywood's inept legislation, but it is a role the court is having to play at the moment, owing to the disastrous way Hollywood is mismanaged. The first item in any Hollywood reform bill should be to shore up its broken lawmaking procedures so that the Supreme Court can stop having to step in to correct the legal nonsense our National Parliament keeps trying to put onto the statute book. And that was an opinion piece by Adam Tompkins, who was a Conservative MSP for the Glasgow region from 2016 to 2021. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 9th of February 2023. Arts and Entertainments. Books. This true love story is the cat's whiskers. By Herald Magazine. Fiction. The mysterious case of the Alperton Angels. Janice Hallett. Viper. £16.99. Ebook. £11.99. Janice Hallett's latest offering, The Mysterious Case of the Alperton Angels, tells the tale of true crime writer Amanda Bailey. She's attempting to track down a baby who narrowly escaped the clutches of the sinister Alperton Angels cult almost two decades ago, and is now about to turn 18. But Amanda's not the only one on the trail. Once again, Hallett issues traditional chapters to tell the story via other means, this time mainly through emails, messages and transcriptions. Those not familiar with this style, it could make the story feel confusing at the start, but it's well worth sticking with. It's a gripping read, which keeps the reader guessing what really happened to the baby and the cult until the last page. 9 out of 10. The Cloisters, Katie Hayes, Bantam Press, £14.99. Ebook, £7.99. The Cloisters covers themes of fate and free will, and Stillwell has had a rough year, so when the opportunity arises for her to intern at the Met, she makes it her mission to break free of her mother's desire for her to stay home in Walla Walla and move to New York. On her first day, she finds her internship is no longer there, but fortuitously, she's shuffled to an area called the Cloisters, where her knowledge of arcane languages is sought after. While working for curator Patrick, Anne becomes entwined with fellow researcher Rachel. Something feels off, but what is it? This is a modern gothic masterpiece. It successfully links contemporary critical thinking with the divinity of the past and human nature's desire to believe that there is something else out there. 9 out of 10. Cold People Tom Rob Smith Simon & Schuster UK £16.99 Ebook £9.99 An armada of alien ships fills the sky before a broadcast orders the world's population to reach Antarctica within 30 days or face merciless annihilation. 
Tom Rob Smith, best known for his Child 44 thriller series, effectively makes those reading cold people imagine what they would do when faced with the frostiest of dilemmas. But the epic exodus of millions is just the start. How do we survive and thrive as a refugee species on a continent not fit for humans? Which moral codes would we twist or break in pursuit of rebuilding civilization on an unforgiving desert of ice? Petrifying action sequences and passages of pure psychosociological terror make for a gripping page-turner that will certainly give you the chills. 8 out of 10 Non-fiction The Year of the Cat Rhiannon Lucy Coslett Tinder Press £18.99 Ebook £9.99 Anyone fortunate enough to share their heart with a cat will no doubt be drawn to this book and they'll be richly rewarded as Guardian journalist and novelist Rhiannon and Lucy Coslett weave stories of other writers and artists through history who have adorned their felines with their own tale of adopting a cat called Macro during lockdown. This is also an exploration of trauma as Coslett recounts her experiences with PTSD after surviving a life-threatening attack in her 20s of growing up a young carer with a severely autistic brother, of a woman finding her way in the world and, through it all, grappling with both the longing and fear of becoming a mother. It is an ode to love, healing, feminism, and above all else, a stunning portrait of the web of experiences and conflicting emotions that steer us. Its themes and narrative alone make this memoir a work of art, but Coslett's mastery of words and ability to point her lens right on the heart of her topics is beautiful. This is a book that will stay with you for life. 10 out of 10. Children's Book of the Week. I Send You a Hug. Anne Booth. Illustrated by Aza Gilland. Puffin, £7.99. Ebook, £5.99. If you're looking for a comforting bedtime read for preschool children, then Anne Booth's latest picture book, I Send You a Hug, about feeling the presence of love even when separated from someone special, might be for you. When Big Bear must go away, she tells Little Bear of the many ways she will remain with him and he embarks on a journey through raindrops, colours, stars and waves to find the warm feeling that Big Bear usually brings. This incredibly gentle read is soft and soothing, ideal for that just before bed wind down children often need. However, it doesn't hold up against the punchier lyrical picture books in the market and lacks the strong narrative that slightly older kids enjoy. 6 out of 10 By Herald Magazine Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 8th of February 2023 Arts and Entertainments Theatre Moonset Tron Glasgow Four Stars by Neil Cooper Theatre Critic Theatre Moonset Tron Theatre Glasgow Neil Cooper Four Stars Roxy's on fire It's a new moon She and her mates Bushra, Gina and Joanne are on the verge of something that burns even brighter and things will never be the same again So it goes in Mariam Hamidi's New play for teenagers and upwards, which charts Roxy and Co's journey into her womanhood with hormonally charged abandon, with an extra added frisson of would-be witchcraft for good measure. Set beside designer Jen McGinley's mountain of junkyard detritus, where Roxy and her coven cast spells without being disturbed, Beedie's play cops some of its moves from the more supernaturally inclined branch of teen TV that serves up similarly inclined rites of passage. Hamidi, director Joanna Bauman, and their turbocharged young cast bring adolescent angst and everyday dysfunction to bear with a scabrous wit that masks their vulnerability even as it helps cast out the sorted demons they face. Most pressing of these is the illness of Roxy's ill mother, Shide, played movingly by Zara Brown. 
Bowman's Citizens Theatre production is a girl gang riot of a show performed with raucous abandon by Cindy Hour as Bushra, Leah Byrne as Gina, and Hannah Vasochi as Joanne, all led into temptation by Leila Kirk's mercurial Roxy. Yet beyond the rage that drives the play is a sensitive and moving study of the uneasy bond between mothers, daughters, and the spirited sisters who share the same growing pains en route to womanhood. If some things are beyond their control, Hamidi's play is a call to arms for young women stepping out into the world to hold on to the power in their possession that keeps their fire alive. By Neil Cooper. The Herald, Friday the 10th of February 2023. News. Is preventing disease before it happens the future for NHS? This article is by Helen McArdle. Prevention and early detection of disease are key to reducing premature mortality and increasing the length of time people live in good health. But are they also the answer for an NHS struggling to cope with an ageing population? Earlier this week, researchers unveiled the results of a pilot study evaluating a potential new test for prostate cancer, the most common form of the disease among men in Scotland, but for which there is currently no routine screening tool. Like most cancers, the number of cases diagnosed each year in Scotland has been rising rapidly as people live longer. In 1996, there were just over 2,200 cases of prostate cancer detected in Scotland. By 2019, the last full year before COVID disrupted the health service, that had climbed to 3,780 an increase of around 70% in 23 years. It is inevitable that incidents will increase as the population ages. Living into old age is the single biggest risk factor for cancer. If you are a man in Scotland, for example, your chances of developing prostate cancer are more than 12-fold higher if you are in your 80s compared to being age 50 to 54. However, recent analysis by Prostate Cancer UK also found that 35% of men in Scotland were being diagnosed with the disease at stage 4, by which time it had spread and become incurable, compared to just 12.5% of men in London. Detecting prostate cancer at a very early stage is tricky because there are often little or no symptoms and the current PSA blood test, which checks for a protein biomarker associated with the disease, is too unreliable for routine use. Only around a quarter of people who have a prostate biopsy due to an elevated PSA level are actually found to have prostate cancer. The alternative blood test, known as a PSE test and devised by Oxford Biodynamics in collaboration with scientists at Imperial College London and the University of East Anglia, was 94% accurate in detecting prostate cancer when tested on 147 men known to have the disease. 
The next step will be to trial it in a sample of men whose cancer status is unknown. If successful, however, this could pave the way to much faster diagnoses of prostate cancer at an earlier treatable stage, potentially even through routine screening programmes similar to those already used for breast, bowel and cervical cancers. The real holy grail of cancer medicine, however, is the long-touted idea of a universal blood test, a one-stop shop capable of picking up one of a number of cancers long before any symptoms emerge. It may sound like science fiction, but one possible candidate, the Galeri test, is already being assessed via the NHS in England and Wales in what is the world's largest clinical trial to date of the technology. The NHS Galeri trial, which launched in September 2021, has been recruiting 140,000 asymptomatic volunteers aged 50 to 77 with no recent history of cancer treatment or diagnosis. Participants are split into two groups, half receiving the Galeri blood test and half having their blood samples stored for the future. The Galeri test looks for traces of abnormal DNA in patients' blood, a signal that they might be developing cancer. Early research in the US suggested that Galeri was able to accurately detect over 50 types of cancer, including pancreatic and esophageal cancers, which tend to be diagnosed late. The much larger NHS trial will provide much more robust evidence of its success rate. Its manufacturers, Grail, say it could enable the NHS to diagnose three quarters of all cancer cases at stages one or two by 2028, compared to around half now. But final results from the trial are not expected until 2025. If they meet required thresholds, however, the plan is for an almost immediate population-wide rollout of Galeri as a routine screening tool for all eligible age groups. Along with early detection, however, it also carries the risk of false positives for participants whose blood tests throw up a worrying result only for subsequent scans and investigations which themselves may carry a risk of unnecessary exposure to radiation, for example through CT scans, to rule out the disease. The key will be weighing up whether the benefits outweigh the harms. The peril of an ageing population is not unique to the NHS, of course. A panel discussion at the recent Davos summit, entitled The Economy of Our Super-Aging Society, noted that the proportion of the world's population aged 60 plus is set to nearly double from 12% in 2015 to 22% by 2050. This silver tsunami, as one panellist put it, has huge implications for healthcare costs globally. The imperative is to find ways of keeping people well much longer into old age 
partly so that they can continue to work and thus generate taxes, but also because it will become increasingly unaffordable to spend millions keeping people alive in poor health for 15 to 20 years or longer at the end of their lives when money could be better invested in solutions to prevent people falling ill in the first place. This goes beyond early cancer detection. One trial already underway in the UK, Our Future Health, aims to recruit 5 million volunteers over five years through its mobile clinics located in supermarket car parks. Participants' blood samples will be analysed for genetic, protein and metabolic clues that indicate they are either in the early stages of disease or at risk, with the goal that everything from cancers to heart attacks and strokes could be averted through preemptive lifestyle or medical interventions. No one knows yet whether it will work, saving the NHS money and keeping people out of hospital, or be counterproductive, resulting in too many misdiagnoses. That is what the trial will find out. Its lead researcher, Dr Ralab Ali, expects to have the answers within five years. The current system, more people requiring ever more expensive medicines for longer, is not sustainable, he said. Health systems of the future must pivot to preventing illness and keeping people well, not waiting until they are sick. This article is by Helen McArdle. The Herald, Friday the 10th of February 2023. News. UK government urged to come clean on labour shortages. This article is by Scott Wright. The UK government must overcome its fear of talking about immigration and come clean over the reasons why the economy is facing an acute labour and skills shortage. And governments on both sides of the border should act with greater urgency and more closely with business to implement plans set out to drive growth amid forecasts that the UK will be the worst performing of the group of seven leading industrialised nations this year. Tony Danker, Director General of the Confederation of British Industry, said labour and skills shortfalls are the most common concerns raised when he speaks to businesses in Scotland and England, alongside energy prices. But Mr Danker told the Herald that there is now almost no economic migration to the UK following Brexit. Labour shortages have also stemmed from people retiring early during the pandemic, health issues arising from COVID and the increasingly high cost of childcare, he said. The whole point about Brexit was to be able to control our borders, to be able to set out this great points-based system, said Mr Danker, speaking shortly after appearing at the Our Scottish Future event in Glasgow. What we actually have now is almost no economic migration 
and no policy changes at all, despite the fact that we have these mass labour shortages. I think you should just come clean with the public and say that because of COVID, people have retired from the workplace. Because of COVID, lots of people are dealing with health conditions. Because of inflation, lots of people are unable to afford childcare. Therefore, we are short of the skills we need in certain key areas. Therefore, we are going to have temporary visas in place to help with some of the shortfall we have while we solve some of the other problems and get the labour market stronger again. I personally don't think that is a hard sell. I would love to see political leaders make it. Mr Danker said politicians and his experience have become scared to talk to the public about immigration and declared the problem is, once you take immigration off the table as a solution, you are trying to approach this problem with one hand tied behind your back. And we are not pushing for mass immigration. We are pushing for targeted worker visas to cover areas where it is clear we are not going to fill those shortages from within our borders. Mr Danker believes that the way the public responded to the contribution made by people originally from overseas to the NHS during the pandemic and when the haulage industry was permitted to recruit from abroad amid the HGV driver shortage showed they understand the need to be flexible. I think the public are responsive to this, he said. I think what they want is to be sure that we are countering illegal immigration, which is why I understand the Prime Minister is so focused on the small boats problem because it does undermine public confidence in the immigration system. He added that the solution lies with bigger interventions from policymakers in areas such as childcare and occupational health services to help people return to work. If we are not going to use immigration as our lever, then we need to have bigger, bolder, more radical answers, including on skills, he said. The ability to upskill and reskill people to cover new kinds of jobs because of shortages, that is really important. Mr Danker was critical, meanwhile, of the Scottish and UK governments for not showing greater urgency with their plans for economic growth. He praised the content of the National Strategy for Economic Transformation, published early last year by the Scottish Government, which he said included several good ideas for promoting growth. But he said what we need is a little less conversation, a lot more action. Mr Danker said we need plans, milestones, deliverables and the plans and deliverables need to be done jointly with firms because if you want to build a more entrepreneurial economy, that is businesses that do that. If you want new market opportunities, that's business that do that. If you want productivity, more skills or to reduce inequality, you need to get into how firms can play a role in that. And when it comes to delivery, I just don't think it is there. 
So I really like the vision, but what I don't see is the plan. I don't see the milestones and the urgency. And I don't see the joint working with business. I have a similar critique of the UK government. Mr Danker said taking urgent action is vital because the CBI has a genuine fear investment will be directed by companies outside the UK. Highlighting the decision this week by drugs giant AstraZeneca to build a new factory in the Republic of Ireland instead of here. We do have a world now where certainly in the industries of the future, which are predominantly global, flows of global capital will just go elsewhere, he said. I really urge the Scottish Government, as I have done of the Chancellor, to get much more purposeful about executing against a good strategy. But there needs to be more urgency and there needs to be more engagement with businesses to get it done. This article is by Scott Wright. From the Herald Scotland, Friday the 10th of February 2023. From the sports section, Dyson Maeda details Celtic Vinicius Junior study mission by Mark Walker. Celtic star Dyson Maeda has credited Hoops coach Harry Cool as a man behind his dramatic improvement this season after admitting he's made him rethink the way he approaches a game. Ange Postelikoglu this week credited his countryman Kuehl for helping with Maeda's impressive burst of form after scoring 8 goals for Celtic and also providing 5 league assists. Maeda has revealed how former Liverpool and Leeds United forward Kuehl helped him improve his all-round game this season after taking him under his wing. Maeda said, I came to Celtic a year ago but at first I didn't set up any chances at all. Even for most of this season, I wasn't the type of player who could set things up or dribble or anything like that. But Harry Cool, the coach who came in this season, started saying, You're fast, why don't you use it? Just before the World Cup, I started having individual meetings with him after every game, and he started accompanying me to training on my own. After that, I changed. He told me, It doesn't matter if you make mistakes, just keep trying, and just take the initiative. If you can't do it, you can drop back. And I started to dribble more and more. I still don't speak English that well and I didn't want to have too many meetings. I was the type of person who used to think that I didn't even need to watch football. But after meetings with Harry and watching videos of my game, I realised that just by being aware of my own abilities, I could make such a big difference. Harry explains things clearly to me in simple English and the content of his videos are wide ranging. It's not just scenes of dribbling but also positioning in front of the ball the timing of the start of the move, the course of the move, the process leading up to the goal. It's all very carefully selected, so when I'm in for a full match, it's quite long. I do that for every match, so I learn a lot. I've changed the way I look at football myself, and I'm at the stage where I'm learning the depth of football all over again. And Maida, in an interview with in his homeland, revealed he's been studying countryman Karim Mitoma at Brighton and Real Madrid's Vinicius Junior in a bid to get better. He said, I haven't really tried to set up goals before, so I've been watching photos of Carew and watching the dribbling of other left-sided players. I watched Vinicius Junior the other day, mainly left-sided players, and I pay attention to how they set up. I'm also trying to test that out in training. I've certainly started to think about football a lot more. 
Once I played in the World Cup, I felt a strong desire to learn again, so I think I naturally wanted to know more about football. The season is going well, but I want to get both my goals and assists up the fair for about 10 each. Up until now, even if I scored double-digit goals, I had no assists at all, but if I can do both, I can broaden my range as an attacker. I want to take it one day at a time, one game at a time, so that I can become a player who can do many different jobs. And that report was by Mark Walker. From the Herald Scotland, Saturday the 11th of February 2023, from the sports section, Rugby. Finn Russell shines as Scotland turn on the style to Hammer Wales. By Stuart Bathgate, senior sports writer. A record equaling points tally for the fixture. A record margin of victory too. And, more pertinently, back-to-back victories from the start of the championship for the first time since 1996. The Scotland squad had insisted they would need to improve from last week's against England to see off the Welsh. And they did that, with Jamie Ritchie giving this performance 8 out of 10 rather than the 7 he thought Twickenham had merited. By the captain's own admission, there were a, a few clunky bits, especially during a first half spell in which, with George Turner in the sin bin, Wales grew in confidence. But the home team seized hold of the game early on in the second 40 and ran out winners by 5 tries to 1. Scotland are now in 10 points along with Ireland, who are ahead in points differential only. The tournament now has a week off before Giger Townsend's team visit France in round 3. The first indication of the potency that would produce those five tries from the home attack came when Stuart Hogg broke from deep. After the fullback was tackled to the deck, Russell sent a kick to the corner which was tamped back to Jamie Ritchie, but the captain was halted short of the line. Wales had already offended, however, and Russell opened the scoring with a penalty from in front of the posts. Hogson went off with a head injury and was replaced by Kinghorn, but the enforced change did not throw the Scots off their stride and Russell doubled their lead with a second penalty after nearly a quarter of an hour. Hogg's early break was the closest the game had to got to a try in the opening half hour, but that change to Scotland at last made pressure tell. Kel Steam was tackled into touch by Rio Dyer on the right when a score looked on, but advantage was being played and we came back for a penalty on the left. It went into touch, and George Turner finished off from the line-out mall. Russell converted to make it 13-0. Scotland lost a try scorer to the sin bin when he put in a high tackle in George North. It took no time for the visitors to make the extra man tell and they opened their account when Captain Ken Owen finished off from a mall. Bigger converted and it was 13-7. There was still time left in the first half for the Welsh to score again but they blew their chance of a second try before the break when Dyer fumbled a pass with a line at his mercy. Wales were back in the attack in the opening minutes of the second half but they failed to score again before Turner returned. A brilliant get by Russell shifted the momentum and gave Scotland a great attacking platform, but from the line-out, Turner lost the ball just short of the line. Then Duhin van der Meer was set off in a powerful run-up field, only for the Welsh defence to drag him down well short. Scotland next won two penalties in quick succession as Wales began to feel the pressure, and from the second penalty, the home side at last turned that pressure into points. The line at Mall was stopped, but the ball came back from the breakdown. Russell made a break for the line, and just as he was being tackled to the ground, he offloaded to Stein, who caught and touched down all in one motion. Russell added it to extra two points to give Scotland a 27 lead. 
Welsh fullback Liam Williams saw yellow as the referee grew tired of the visitors' repeat offences, and this time it was Scotland's turn to make the numerical advantage count. A clean line-out saw the ball come back to Russell, and his punt to the corner found Stein, who finished calmly for his second try, unconverted this time. Wales tried to hit back inside the final quarter hour, but replacement prop Reese Carr was stripped of the ball when it looked easier to score. Scotland went back in search of a bonus point try, and they got it when Van der Meer put in another long-busting run up the right and provided the scoring pass for Edinburgh teammate Kinghorn. Russell missed the conversion again, but the game was in the bag. Two minutes from time, Matt Fagerson got a fifth after another superb pass from Russell, whose conversion attempt was again off target. To their credit, Wales kept fighting until the end of ending in search of more points, but a poor afternoon ended for them in another low, low note when replacement Reese Webb was yellow carded. And that report was by Stuart Bathgate. The Herald on the 10th of February and the Voices section. Opinion. Scotland could become a world superpower with precision medicine by Gordon Brown. Renowned globally for shipbuilding in the 20th century, Glasgow can be a successful world centre for the new cutting-edge advances in medicine in the 21st century. We could double to 75,000 well-paid jobs in Scotland's life sciences industry. This is one of the messages I will be setting out at the conference today in Glasgow on how we build the city's region's reputation as an economic superpower. Look at new technologies such as precision medicine whereby patients get personalised medical treatment based on their DNA. PM, PM is recognised as a way forward in the treatment of cancer, heart disease, liver and kidney failure. The hope is that through precision medicine, we can predict the risks of diseases in individual patients in conditions like liver, fa- liver failure, where Scotland's death rate from chronic liver diseases is 70% higher than in the UK, and 60% higher than 30 years ago. PM is therefore potentially transformational for healthcare. It's also likely to become a major new global health industry, and Glasgow already has these great advantages in the search to become a world centre. The Living Lab, integrated at the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in Govan, has brought together partners in medicine and industry to examine how to adopt healthcare in the innovations into clinical practice. It is backed up by a health innovation hub with 45,000 square feet of office and lab space to accommodate new companies who can expand the Glasgow cluster and add to 230 companies in Scotland already involved in PM. Already Glasgow is one of only two main UK centres for medical pathology and it is the main centre for medical imaging. Glasgow is well placed to get a head start in this sector. But one of the key messages I want to set out today is that this kind of cluster of economic activity will not be enough for international competitiveness and to guarantee the thousands of high paid jobs we can create unless Scotland thinks bigger. Leadership and life scientists needs not only great local universities and outstanding medical and research expertise, which would make us a power in the land, but Glasgow's planning needs to go deeper, wider and broader if it is to be a global medical superpower in an area where we are competing with US might and the wider European Union. It needs to be wider than Scotland to draw upon the biggest pool of capital investing from London in startups and growing companies. 
It needs to be broader than Scotland to draw on the biggest source of data, the most valuable of which is information from the UK's 65 million health records and our ability to do trials and test and track on a bigger canvas than anyone else. And it needs to be deeper than local collaborations by intensifying cooperation with British universities and global medical institutes. Superpower status and precious medicine means we have to continuously look outwards. So, in the case of precision medicine, the UK and Scottish governments should come together to create the world's first precision medicine academy that would become a magnet for new teaching and research in the field for medics, scientists and investors from all over the world. Exactly 175 years ago, Scottish doctor James Simpson discovered the anaesthetic properties of a substance called chloroform. 75 years ago, the Scots bacteriologist Alexander Fleming was awarded the Nobel Prize for his discovery of penicillin, which led to revolution in antibiotics. Today, Glasgow and Scotland stand ready to lead a new medical revolution in one of the most advanced areas of modern life sciences, so long as we are prepared to think as big as those great innovators and inventors of Glasgow's past. Innovation and a new high-employment life sciences cluster is one answer to a lost decade in which Glasgow manufacturing employment has fallen to half that of UK in which productivity has dropped well below other major cities, and despite having some of the best qualified graduates in the country, wages in Glasgow have fallen behind the UK. And I believe that this model is a template for Scotland across a range of other sectors. Our Scottish Future, the think tank I work with to support a progressive patriotic future for Scotland within the UK, has already charted how the video game industry, one branch of the new digital sector, we can become a superpower if we draw on the predominantly London-based venture capital and private equity industries. The same is true of hydrogen, wind and wave, where Scotland can be a superpower in the environmental industries if we draw on the wider investment opportunities that comes from a UK-wide financial sector. In medicine, working on their own Scottish medics can be a power in the land but working in concert with, concert with the rest of the UK, Scotland, can become a world superpower in one of the most innovative and exciting branches of medicine and the life sciences. For if we are to create, as is hoped, Scotland's first globally competitive and homegrown biotech and biopharma company that will require us to draw on data across the UK, expertise from all over the country and funds from the British-wide investment community. The potential for precision medicine is vast. Glasgow can be a world leader by being part of a wider effort that works for all. That was by Gordon Brown. The Herald on the 10th of February and the Voices section. Opinion. Man, women or rapist, we can't define by a person's crime. By Katrina Stewart. The week began with grim news. A woman, man and seven-year-old girl found dead in their home in what police called an isolated incident for, what, for which they were not looking for anyone else. Few would have been surprised to subsequently learn that Emma Patterson and her daughter Letty had been murdered by their husband and father who then killed himself. This was an isolated incident in police termino terminology but far from an isolated incident in societal terms. 
It is early February, and so far this year, according to Counting Dead Women, eight women and girls have already been killed where a man in is the primary or only subspe- suspect. There are 108 in 2022. Out with police speak, this is not an isolated incident. I saw a woman tweet, of course it was the husband. Are any of us surprised anymore? Another replied, it's a sad state of affairs that I couldn't keep track of. Which missing or dead women this was referring to, indeed. In the media, we still have a poor habit of using hyperbolic language to describe the perpetrators of particular crimes. It's salacious, a way of making the events titillating in their unusualness. Men who carry out these acts are not quite human. It's what's there between the lines. No. Men who commit crimes against women are not monsters or bogeyman or beasts. They are boringly commonplace. Fatally so. Violence against women is committed by ordinary men. Dehumanizing them, making them outliers, undermines the fact that this is an ingrained society-wide issue. This brings me uncomfortably to the debate about whether the convicted rapist known as Isla Bryson, formerly Adam Graham, is a man or a woman, or something else. SNP politicians have clearly been briefed to refer to this individual or the rapist, dodging even the use of Graham or Bryson. Nicola Sturgeon says she doesn't have enough information to know if Bryson is truly trans or not, although in apparent contradiction of that statement, she has agreed with Douglas Ross's assessment that the individual is probably lying. This undermines the SNP's own defence of gender self-ID. The problem that critics of the law have been pointing out for years is that it's impossible to say whether someone is really trans or not when you can't define any of your terms. It is, in technical terms, an utter guddle. Asked about the subject on Question Time last week, the SNP's Jenny Gulrath gave a fluent and confident performance, but her confidence in repeating the party line on the Bryson issue was no strength. Following Sturgeon's example, she refused to be drawn on whether Bryson was a man or a woman, and said rapist instead. A repeated non sequitur, no matter how firmly repeated, does not somehow become relevant and sensible the more you say it. Part of the issue is a desperate desire not to cause offence and to stir the pot, with those on either side of the gender recognition debate holding firm positions. It's not difficult to make one misstep, one slip of a word, and no one can focus on the central, reasonable issues because everyone's offended. To sidestep this, the point Sturgeon and her colleagues are trying to focus on is that a person's sex and gender identity are less important than the crime. The crime maketh a man, or woman, individual, who knows. But the prison population are not the crimes. There's an acceptance of calling Bryson the rapist, because rape is a heinous crime, and society feels no sympathy for sex offenders in the way, say, we might understand that a person is compelled to steal due to a material need or take drugs in response to adverse life events. We do not then refer solely to the thief or the addict. Acknowledging Bryson purely by crime committed is a dehumanizing approach. I'm not concerned with dehumanizing Bryson for Bryson's sake. Far, desperately far from it. I'm concerned about the wider narratives around male violence against women and how 
even now, even with feminist groups plugging away for decades trying to tackle the issue, we still other the men who terrorize us. Discussion of male violence inevitably needs to indignant calls of not all men. Violence against women is committed by ordinary men. Dehumanizing them, making them outliers, undermines the fact that this is an ingrained society-wide issue. Scotland's justice system works on the basis of sentencing with a view to punishment, yes, but also for rehabilitation. Rehabilitation works only if we treat imprisoned people with dignity and humanity. How is a person rehabilitated when no one can acknowledge who they are? In a press conference, the First Minister said there is no other group in society where we accept that the actions of an individual somehow forms a justification for taking away rights from the whole group, or not according rights to that group. That's just incorrect. The Equality Act follows, allows for restriction of access to certain spaces and services, including to exclude men. Whether you agree with the premise of that or the way it is applied is entirely separate from the fact of its accuracy. What Sturgeon presumably means is that we shouldn't penalise a decent majority of the actions for a small number of bad actors. But this can't be an absolute statement or it undermines the purpose of legislation in other areas. All adults, say, must apply to Disclosure Scotland to work with children, but there's no suggestion that all adults are unsafe around young people. Gun control legislation was significantly tightened, followed the massacre in Dunblane in 1996, mass restrictions following the actions of one person. Dismay has been expressed that Emma Patterson's husband was able to own a weapon when the family lived in the grounds of a school. But it's easy to be wise after the fact, to be outraged that a killer had a gun. Of course, he wasn't a killer until he turned that gun on his family. Until then, he was just a man. From the Herald, Sunday, the 12th of February, 2023. Sports section. The Darville dream continues as Chairman John Gall dares to think big. By Liam Bryce. Life has not been the same at Darville since that night. It probably won't ever be again. Those inside the club were never in doubt that beating Aberdeen was well within their power. But Chairman John Gall confessed he did not quite grasp the enormity of what that would mean. It's been billed as the greatest upset in the long history of the Scottish Cup. A seventh tier side, also rounds of the junior game only a few years ago, toppling arguably the third biggest club in the country. On Monday night, they welcomed League One's Falkirk to a now expectant recreation park for an unthinkable place in the quarterfinal. Gall says nobody knew where Darville was a short few weeks ago. They do now. Where were all of you four years ago, he quips. Taking a seat alongside manager Mick Kennedy, it's Saturday morning and the club have thrown open their doors to fans, media and anybody else curious just to what is happening in this tiny pocket of East Ayrshire. The open day has attracted young and old. The Kelly Pies are on the house and the Scottish Cup sits glistening on the top table. On the towns nearby Main Street, the blue and white bunting thrown up on every window and door last time the circus came to town remains unmoved. It's been great, Gaw says. The ladies in particular are loving it. They've got their hair done, their makeup on every day in case the cameras pop into their shop. 
They're all loving it. The whole town is buzzing for it. There's people from Darville who have never seen anything like this in their life. The elderly people. It's great for them to see it. The only regret that I have is Peter Orr, former Darville president who died two weeks before. Peter was instrumental in bringing me to the club. He was here every day of the week. A great character. He died just before the Aberdeen game. I think he was looking down on us that night, saying, well done, guys. He will no doubt be watching again, like the rest of the country, when Falkirk attempt to succeed where Aberdeen could not. It certainly will be no easy task. Darville not only defeated the Dons, they did so playing an expansive brand of football that, that does not often accompany underdog stories such as this. Confidence is understandably high, and Gaul Mischief Lee is up for giving his audience something to talk about. Could you imagine Darville in the Scottish Cup final in May, he says, with a glint in his eye. Everybody in Darville would be cancelling their holidays and saying, wait a minute, we're not going to Spain now, we're going to the Cup final. To his right, Kennedy's laugh is a pained one. No pressure, Mick, comes the cry from the floor. But why shouldn't they dream? Nobody thought possible what transpired in the pitch Outside, last time, they may as well believe anything is possible. We've got the dream, Gaul insists. We dreamed of beating Aberdeen and the bookies took a hammering from people in Darville because they all put a couple of quid on 1-0 and got great odds. The pubs were all open late that night, people spending their money. The pubs made in one day what they usually take in three weeks. So that's an example of what it meant to the whole town. It's been brilliant. As surreal as this is for everyone at the club, it's easy to forget the Scottish Cup is ultimately a very welcome aside to their ultimate ambition of reaching the SPFL. Increased exposure has yielded increased sponsorship, no doubt invaluable in their push to progress up the pyramid. In football, however, reputations do not burgeon without facing criticism. Darville have been well financed clearly, but Gaul, also managing director at Brownings the Bakers, rejects the notion there's anything artificial about their rise. So Michael's joined the club. We've talked about what we can do and how we can do it. Everybody's gone, look at them. And we've had quite a bit of a roasting on social media about different things. People say it's all about money, but you look at the football being played here. I've even heard other managers and senior football say, it's their budget. Our budget? We have a lot less than second division budgets. I've given Michael a budget to get out of this division and that's all we're looking for just now. Get into the Lowland League and take it from there to try and move up the leagues. What can I say about Michael? It's not just him but the players he brings in. They need to have certain quality on and off the park. I don't always agree with what he does, there's no doubt about that, but we get on well together. He's smiling today because I got him a new jacket. He might have just have a little bit more to grin about come full time on Monday evening. That article was by Liam Bryce. From the Herald, Sunday, February the 12th, 2023, from the sports section. Goodwillie shouldn't be allowed to play football in public eye again. By Susan Eaglestaff, sports writer. A rapist being awarded a contract at a football club once could be considered careless. Twice is folly, to say the least. But three times, there are barely any words for such an abomination. David Goodwillie is the rapist in question. 
In 2017, he was found liable in a civil case of raping a woman six years previously. This was just another black mark to add to his criminal convictions of assault in 2008 and 2009, and then again in 2012. It is not a great CV, is it? Goodwillie, as well as being a rapist and a serial assaulter, is also a very good footballer. At Dundee United, he was named SPFA and SWFA Young Player of the Year for 2010-11, before moving to the English Premier League, having been bought by Blackburn Rovers for £2 million. He also won three caps for Scotland. His rape verdict in 2017 came while he was at Plymouth Argyle. He left the club to consider an appeal, but just two months later joined Clyde FC, which led local politician John Mason to say he would no longer attend their games for the rest of the season. It was a relatively successful spell for Goodwillie at Clyde, on the pitch anyway. A hundred goals during his time there, nothing to be scoffed at. It was his move to Wraith Rovers last year, though, that really lit the touch paper. Two club directors, several staff members, the women's team captain, and most club volunteers resigned. Shirt sponsor Van McDermott withdrew her support of the club, and the women's team cut their ties as a consequence of Goodwillie's signing. Just a few days later, Wraith said he would not be selected to play, and soon after, he was loaned back to Clyde. That caused an other uproar, with their women's team resigning en masse and North Lanarkshire Council announcing their lease on Broadmoor Stadium would be terminated if Goodwillie was permitted entry. Clyde promptly cancelled the loan deal. It was becoming clear which way the wind was blowing with regard to having Goodwillie on the books. A subsequent appearance as a trialist for Livingston United met with similar public disapproval and he was not signed. The message sent by Wraith Rovers, Clyde and Livingston United was not, it seems, however, clear enough for Radcliffe FC. Last week, the English Northern Premier League club signed Goodwillie, but thought the best way to welcome his arrival was to sneak him on the pitch unnoticed. His signing was not announced and his arrival at the club was only spotted when he scored a hat-trick on his debut. The backlash was immediate and fierce. Within a day of his signing, he was gone. There are two things of note here. First, Radcliffe FC were clearly aware there may be some discontent about Goodwillie joining, or why else would they try to slip him into the team covertly? Did they think that by failing to announce his signing, no one would notice? Club officials apparently weighed up the anticipated response they would get to signing a rapist and decided it was still worth going ahead even after Ferrari at Wraith Rovers and Clyde. And second, Goodwillie is not going to get a second chance in football. At the age of 33, he turns 34 next month. Time is running out on his career. It's hard to believe any other club would deem it worth the trouble to sign him. However much value they believe he would bring to their team on the pitch. After all, there's surely no amount of goals that are worth such dreadful and detrimental publicity. Is it right though that Goodwillie should be denied a second chance? Well yes, it's his second chances per se are a good thing. One mistake, even if it's a grave mistake, should not necessarily ruin a person's life forever. There are things like contrition and rehabilitation that mean second chances are not only acceptable but also deserved. 
Second chances within sport, for me anyway, are often harder to stomach. When someone has been convicted of an offence such as rape, it's hard to convince me that the message sent out is you can be given the privilege of playing professional sport. Footballers in particular, whether you believe sports people should be considered role models or not, are admired by countless people, particularly young boys. Are there many people comfortable with their sons worshipping a rapist? I'm not. There are examples of second chances working out. Chad Evans, who was convicted of rape in 2012, served his prison time and was then cleared, has resumed his football career. He's not exactly the player I'd love my son to attach himself to, but he is innocent and should be treated accordingly. Goodwillie, however, is guilty of multiple offences. He's shown little contrition. Should he deserve then to continue his career as a footballer? No, he shouldn't. He should be allowed to work again, but there has to be consequences of having this record to your name. And one of those consequences should be that you no, no longer enjoy the privilege of doing a job that demands or at least requests you be a role model for so many kids. Goodwillie's hat trick for Radcliffe FC will, I hope, be the last time we see him playing the beautiful game on such a stage. That article was by Susan Eaglestaff. This article is from The Herald on Monday the 13th of February 2023. It is from the opinion section and the headline is Blaming the media is a sign the SNP is in deep trouble. And the report is by Kevin McKenna. When politicians no longer have the means to defend their failures, they tend to fall back on a tried and tested strategy. Blame the media. Yesterday, Mike Russell provided a classic example of this dismal genre. Writing in the Sunday National, the SNP chairman portrayed his party as a beacon of democracy and diversity by saying that he welcomed all views on how to secure Scottish independence. Then he elected to become childish. That is, of course, why they are being opposed tooth and nail in what has been a unionist-inspired media-feeding frenzy targeted at Nicola Sturgeon with the aim of decapitating the party, demonising its leadership, derailing our discussion and delegitimising what we seek to achieve, he wrote. When words like frenzy, decapitating, demonising and delegitimising are all fitted into such a tight space, it's often a sign that the author is beginning to fray around the edges. Yet, losing the plot and wrecking the house are not behaviours normally associated with Mr Russell, a seasoned campaigner known to be circumspect and moderate in his dealings with friend and foe alike. Until a few weeks ago, the SNP and Miss Sturgeon had enjoyed, by any reasonable analysis, a relatively harmonious relationship with the Scottish and UK press. Indeed, it wasn't very long ago that Scotland's First Minister was being greeted with almost universal acclaim by newspapers and magazines representing all points of the political spectrum. You never had to wait long between fawning and unctuous puff pieces masquerading as interviews or profiles penned by a select cohort of journalists who'd been mesmerised by their proximity to raw power. 
There was even a photo shoot with Miss Sturgeon looking a million dollars in a bonnie skirt and sweater combo for Vogue magazine. Much of this, of course, can be attributed to her judicious and empathetic leadership during the COVID crisis. In that first terrifying year of lockdown, her daily media briefings were like lifelines for those groups who felt most vulnerable to the predations of COVID-19. They were everything that Boris Johnson's Downing Street briefings were not. Detailed, honest, authoritative. It's why Fraser Nelson, editor of the most unionist and conservative-facing organ of them all, The Spectator, last month described her as one of the most successful politicians, not just in Britain, but in Europe. What she's managed to achieve politically is remarkable, Mr Nelson observed. Gradually, though, the threat of COVID began to recede, and inevitably the more routine affairs of government became pertinent once more bridging the attainment gap in our schools, managing the runaway juggernaut that, that's the NHS, and devising a strategy of curbing Scotland's devastating addiction death toll. On all of these issues, it can be argued that criticism of Miss Sturgeon's administration was entirely reasonable and justified. Nevertheless, another election was won, and polling for the next one indicated a similar outcome. Scotland's First Minister, you see, possesses an advantage denied to all other ruling parties and political leaders across Europe and the UK. The continuously febrile issue of Scottish independence. By deploying this formidable political weapon, she has easily seen off all opposition in Scotland. She's been assisted in this by the absurdly weak efforts of the Scottish Tories and the Labour Party in Scotland. When such a democratic deficit exists in the political realm, it's the duty of the media to attempt to bridge it by analysing governing parties' political failures. And as it became depressingly obvious that the SNP was playing the wider yes movement for fools with its half-hearted commitment to self-determination, even independent-supporting commentators began to examine what was really happening within the party. It's not a pretty sight. This is a party where bullying and intimidation has become the norm, most of it targeted at any members who dare to question the leadership's route of travel towards independence. Mr Russell insists that he welcomes all ideas about how best to achieve this, yet he chose to remain silent when individuals like Chris McElhenney, Angus McNeil and others were marginalised and abused for proposing what the First Minister has recently embraced making the next election a de facto independence plebiscite. Mr Russell also knows what's changed in recent weeks to have loosened Nicola Sturgeon's grip on power, her absurdly unwise strategy of ignoring all concerns about the self-ID part of the GRR bill has begun to unravel. The opponents of this tried to warn her that when the regressive whims of an insidious cartel of activists met the reality of public opinion, she'd be in deep, deep trouble. But, having chosen to surround herself with a praetorian guard of science-dodging, misogynistic extremists, she had convinced herself that the public would be cowed into acquiescent silence. 
This delusion was reinforced by having the nastier evangelists of this credo hunt down any refuseniks on social media and accuse them of being transphobic bigots. Soon, though, the Scottish public were alive to what was being proposed after it was revealed that the Scottish government wanted to place a double rapist among very vulnerable women at Cornton Vale Prison. Nor did they take kindly to being patronised by a political elite who had lately taken to describing them as ignorant, primitive transphobes. The union-inspired media-feeding frenzy of Mike Russell's vivid imagination is, of course, nothing of the sort. The damage to Miss Sturgeon and the entire Yes movement has all been self-inflicted by the leadership of the SNP. For present and future students of politics, it's a lesson on what happens when a political elite becomes so drunk on power that they believe they can defame the people who elected them. The media are simply reacting to what their readers and viewers are telling them, that they're not stupid, they're not transphobes, and they know when they're being taken for a ride. Those Scottish trade union leaders who have also been captured by the lie that sex isn't binary should also think carefully about this. Decapitating, demonising, derailing and delegitimising is what's been going on within the SNP for several years now, and the worst of it has targeted women inside the party. In due course, some of them may feel secure enough to reveal publicly the orchestrated campaign of threat directed at them on the SNP's ruling National Executive Committee and to name and shame the worst perpetrators of it. Mike Russell knows all about this. By his silence, he is complicit in it. He should be reflecting on this rather than launching infantile attacks on the media. That report was by Kevin McKenna. From the Herald Scotland, published on the 14th of February 2023, The Herald Diary, The Rising Sun and the Hot Cross Bun. By Lorne Jackson. Foreign Affairs Continued. There are a few eternal conundrums that scientists and philosophers have never been wise enough to answer, such as what is the meaning of life, why do bad things happen to good people, and most important of all, if technology is so advanced, why has the triple-decker bus not yet been invented? The diary has no scientists or philosophers on the payroll, yet we are adept at dealing with life's mysteries. For example, yesterday we mentioned that reader Margaret Forbes has been entertaining Akiko, the mother of one of Celtic's Japanese footballers. Other readers demanded to know how Margaret bags such a privilege. So we ask Margaret and she explains that Akiko practices Nirishina Buddhism and wanted to meet others of the faith in Scotland and that happens to include Margaret. That's why she came to visit, says Margaret, and I was able to introduce her to hot cross buns. She thought they were delicious. The diary wonders how Aikiko would have reacted if she'd sampled tatty scones. Probably decided to settle in for Scotia for good. Pegged out. Newshound Ian Noble from Kirsty's village read that a crime boss with a wooden leg was, a, was apprehended after 30 years on the run. Shouldn't that be 30 years on the hop, inquires Ian. 
mortifying moniker. The diary recently heard about a firm of funeral directors called YOLO. You only leave once. Musing on other suitable acronyms for morticians, David Donaldson suggests GTF, which sounds a tad rude for a final send-off. Though David assures us it stands for Good Traditional Funerals. Modern Romance Valentine's Day is upon us, meaning that, curses, we must dote upon our partners for a hellish 24 hours of vulgar sentimentality. Even the stone-hearted diary has grudgingly been dragged into the fray, for we're currently deciding the worst reply to the sentence, I love you. Tom Harvey suggests, pipe down, pal, or I'm asking you, I'm asking for a new cellmate. A tall tale, concrete and glass are most, mostly made from sand, points out reader Mark Ramsden, which means skyscrapers are just tall sandcastles. Work or Schick The teenage son of reader Alice Jones has long wanted to study medicine, though he recently changed his mind. Alice inquired why. The school careers advisor said it entails hard work, discipline and perseverance, sighed the youth. I've got no time for all of that. Getting the sack. Curious reader Nicola Monroe asks, if a male worker loses their job, does that mean they're relieved of their post? Well, as we said, that was the Herald Diary by Lorne Jackson. Read today by Alistair. Punishing drinks companies wrong way to tackle alcohol abuse. An article from the Herald and Herald Scotland published on the 14th of February 2023. The article is by Niraj Thomas. The Scottish Government's consultation on restricting alcohol advertising has raised huge concerns within an industry that is a major source for economic growth. The Scotch whisky industry alone contributes around £5.5 billion to our economy each year. While much has been said about the potential damage in terms of jobs and investments that would accompany wholesale restriction on alcohol and advertising and promotion, a further area of concern is its impact on the intellectual property, the IP, held by Scottish-based drinks producers. Companies have invested significant resources on their IP to safeguard their brand ownership. The value of this IP is fundamental to a brand's success in a global marketplace. Yet the Scottish Government appears to misunderstand or is simply disregarding its importance. The consultation provides that when one removes marketing strategies, alcohol products in each beverage subsector are simply variations of the same thing. This perspective fails to acknowledge the effort and investment made by Scottish drinks companies to ensure their high quality end products are unique and distinguished from competitors. The fact is that consumers rely on more than just a generic word or name when electing which product to buy. A company's IP, which can include its brand, trademark, logo, marketing materials and even the shape of its bottle, help differentiate differentiate between higher and lesser quality products. 
While price may not always be the determining factor for consumers, if alcohol brands less recognisable, the companies behind them will have less incentive to invest in innovation, increase quality and develop new offerings, including zero or low alcohol ranges, which have seen significant growth in recent years. Many of the arguments behind the alcohol advertising and promotion consultation are similar to those that supported the ban on tobacco packaging. This, however, ignores the fact that for the majority, alcohol consumption is enjoyed on a moderate level, unlike smoking, and that drinks companies make a wider contribution to Scotland's tourism offering and economy. While the Scottish Government's consultation does not go as far as calling for plain packaging for alcohol products, it does look at potential means of making brands far less visible, which could also include banning of all drinks brand-sponsored events. As well as further diminishing the value of companies' IP, such a measure would be hugely damaging for many sporting and community events which rely on this financial support. Preventing children and other vulnerable groups from being exposed to alcohol promotions is undeniably sensible, but a blanket ban would have a detrimental impact and make some events unviable. The Scottish Government should be supported in seeking to address the serious issue of alcohol abuse in Scotland, but its approach should look at the root causes behind this problem and focus on education and treatment. Punishing our globally focused drinks companies, including preventing them from utilising their IP that has been developed over decades and in some cases centuries, will only bring economic hardship to a flagship industry. Miraj Thomas is a partner and IP specialist at law firm CMS. This article was read by Alistair. The Herald on the 14th of February and the Arts and section. Richard Sharp, BBC chairman, must fall on his sword and resign by Jodie Harrison. Richard Sharp is facing growing calls to fall on his sword and resign as BBC chairman over the cronyism and row caused by him helping Boris Johnson secure an £800,000 loan facility. Rishi Sunak was standing by the embattled former banker despite a highly critical cross-party report by MBs finding Mr Sharp chairman made significant errors of judgment. Veteran broadcaster Jonathan Dimbleby warned that Mr Sharp acting as a go-between shortly before being put forward for the role was causing a great deal of damage for the BBC. He told BBC Newsnight, I have no doubt he is an honourable man. No reason do I have to doubt that. But what he should do honourably is to fall on his sword and say, in the interest of the BBC, which I care about, I don't want this to go on and on and on. I shall stand aside. Former journalist Baroness Wheatcroft, who sits on the Lord's Communications and Digital Committee, added her voice to the demands for Mr Sharp to resign from the plum job. Mr Sharp may be a very honourable man, but there's no getting away from the fact that he helped to organise an £800,000 loan that would get the Prime Minister out of financial trouble. He did him a favour just when he wanted the Prime Minister to give him the top job at the BBC, she told BBC Radio 4's Today programme. Even if Mr Sharp behaved absolutely correctly, it doesn't look right. It
it doesn't smell right. It doesn't feel right for the BBC to have a chairman who's now being questioned about his judgment. What the BBC needs in a chairman is impeccable judgment. The new call came after a report from the Commons Digital Culture, Media and Sports Committee said Mr Sharp failed to declare to MPs his role in facilitating the arrangement when he was applying for the job. The MPs said his actions constitute a breach of the standards expected of individuals applying for prominent public appointments. Mr Sunak said on Sunday he will await the outcome of the inquiry ordered by the Commissioner for Public Appointments despite calls from Labour for Mr Sharp to go. Mr Sharp has apologised for introducing his friend Sam Bly, the cousin of Mr Johnson, who wanted to help the then Prime Minister with his financial troubles, to the Cabinet Office. Downing Street said Mr Sunak supports Mr Sharp in the role and was confident in the process that led to his appointment. That was by Jodie Harrison. That concludes this week's edition of the Herald Scotland podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our channels at Q and Review and to tell your friends about our service.